Good morning, New Life. Good to see you today. We're going to share the Lord's Supper together this morning. And uh, our teaching is going to be really a preparation for that as we look at John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, if you could open there. We're going to look at some spiritual realities in the Lord's Supper. But I want to remind you that the spiritual realities, the spiritual life that we experience flows out into every area of our lives. God created everything. He created everything we can see physically, but he also created invisible, the principalities, the uh, authorities. He created all the areas, the venues, the environments that we live in. So God created the institution of marriage, business, economics, education, the church, even the rhythm of work and rest, recreation. And so all of these areas of our lives are affected by our spiritual life. So imagine your spiritual life being the hub of the wheel of your life and all of these areas are spokes in the wheel of your life. And so <clears throat> when we look at spiritual realities, we need to remember that they flow out into our marriages, our parenting, our relationships, the way we invest and, and spend our money and the way we earn our money and the way we relate to each other and education and all of these areas. So uh, as we look at this, I hope that you will be able to see how this might flow out into the other areas of your life. So John chapter 6, verses 47 through 58 is where we're going to camp out. Um, the Lord's Supper is like a beautiful string of pearls connecting the first coming of Christ with the second coming of Christ as a reminder, as a memorial to the beauty of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ for us uh, as the song that we just sang so beautifully expressed. And so I'd like for us to look at this together. Uh, now, in preparation to look at this passage, I want to back up a little bit and give you a little context. Jesus, in early verses of chapter 6, it records that he had, he had fed the 5,000 men, which meant, and their families, could have been up to 20,000 people. And uh, it was an incredible miracle to take a few fishes and loaves and to see that multiply into enough food to feed all of these people. And so many of the people there looked at what he did and and they were just absolutely amazed, and they said, yes, this is the Messiah. This is the one that we've been looking for after we see this miracle. But in any crowd, any, especially in that context with, with the, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, there were skeptics in that crowd. And so there were people there who were watching that, and they were saying, yeah, yeah, this is okay. But remember Moses, he fed up to 3 million people for 40 years, the manna in the wilderness. So it's like they're saying, Jesus, what else have you got to show us? And so Jesus responds to their skepticism in this passage of Scripture with a smackdown by making an even more audacious, more scandalous claim by basically saying, hey, I didn't just come to make bread. I am the bread of life. And he says that several times in this passage of Scripture, and then he comes in again in John 6, 
starting with verse 47. <clears throat> truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus simply says, whoever believes has eternal life, I'm the bread of life. So the question is, what, did, what, what was he calling them to believe? Well, he was calling them to believe everything that he claimed about himself, his deity, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his miracles, his great teachings, but then especially his intention to set his face like a flint to Jerusalem, to march down the Via Della Rosa, to offer himself. He said, no man takes my life from me, I give it freely. And so to believe in his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his promise that he would return again, all the things that he taught about himself, that's all. <laughs> Just believe about me. Believe what I'm claiming about myself. But then he says, I'm the bread of life. Now, he repeats this. He's already said this earlier in the chapter. But he says it again. He repeats himself because some people weren't listening. Some people d doubted. Some people disputed. And, and then I think some truths are just so wonderful, they long to be repeated. Ronnie Stevens, in his book, The Path to Discipleship, he says, Jesus' first recorded dispute after the public launch of his ministry was over bread. The venue was the wilderness. The opponent was the devil. The issue was temptation. Jesus didn't come to give himself bread. He came to give himself as bread. His life is the bread of our lives. It is the only life, in fact, which can nourish our souls. So Jesus makes a claim that leads us to our first spiritual reality. And that is that physical bread clearly points to spiritual bread. Now next, Jesus clears up any comparison between him and Moses. He says in verse 49, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one, so that one may eat of it and not die. Now the unbelievers claimed that there was a huge quantitative difference between the miracle that Jesus did of feeding up to 20,000 people and the miracle that Moses did in feeding up to 3 million people for 40 years. But Jesus reminds them of something. It wasn't just the quantitative difference, but Jesus points out now the qualitative difference. All those people who ate that manna in the wilderness, they died. In fact, they had to die in order that the next generation could go into the promised land because this first generation were unbelievers and they didn't get to go in. They died. But this bread that Jesus promises isn't just the miracle of making bread, but he is offering himself as the bread of life, and it gives us eternal life, which will not just take us into the promised land. It's going to take us all the way into heaven, and we'll be, eat that, we'll be able to eat that bread with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. And that's, that's what's incredible about what he's offering himself for. Now, he makes another startling claim. <clears throat> he says in verse 51, I am the living bread. 
that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He explains the means by which he will give this bread that it's going to be through his broken flesh, which means he's predicting I'm going to have to die. He actually died, and he gave his life freely as a substitutionary sacrifice for the payment of our sin in his death on the cross. Now look at verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now sometimes we make the mistake of not taking Scripture literally enough. But other times, we can make the mistake of taking it too literally. And that's what the, the, the Jews are doing now. They're literally, they're taking it too literally and making a claim that Jesus is actually calling them to practice cannibalism. Now, this was a claim that the Roman Emperor Nero made uh, that the Christians, when they took the Lord's Supper, that they were claiming to eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood, and he called them cannibals, and that was the way he justified the persecution of the ways that he killed them. And, and today we still have different disagreement over what these words mean. We, one of the Roman Catholic claims is, that the, is called transubstantiation, that when you take the Lord's Supper, that the bread and the cup and, and, and the wine literally turns into the flesh and blood of Jesus as you partake of it. <clears throat> Well, the Lutherans don't go that far. They, they practice what's called consubstantiation. And in consubstantiation, they believe that it doesn't become the physical, but it does become the spiritual body and blood of Jesus. Whereas the primary evangelical belief is that these elements are what Jesus said. He said, you're just doing this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. It's a symbol of my broken body and shed blood. But then Jesus goes on to give further explanation. He says in verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now Jesus, he could have made this teaching more palatable, literally, but not only did he not offer to make it more palatable, he made it even less palatable. He took it one step further. You not only have to eat my flesh, you've got to drink my blood too. Now, why did he make this even harder for them? He could have simply said, hey, guys, calm down, relax. I'm not talking about uh, physically eating my flesh and, and drinking my blood. I'm talking about a spiritual reality here of trusting in, in faith. But he didn't do that. In fact, later on, Jesus did do that. Uh, verse 63, he said, it's the spirit who gives life. So flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you, they're spirit and they're life. But at this moment, he makes it harder on them. Why? Was well, because he knew what was in their unbelieving hearts. He knew that they weren't being honest. And so it must have satisfied them that Jesus not only refused to say something less provocative, but he actually said something more provocative. They also had to drink his blood. But then he comes to a clear movement from physical to spiritual. He says in verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food 
and my blood is true drink. Now this clearly leads us to a second spiritual reality of the Lord's Supper. And that is that the broken body and shed blood of Christ is our spiritual nourishment. The point that Christ is that he has to be personally received into our lives. Or there can be no spiritual life or eternal life. The media through which we receive the Lord Jesus is through our faith and trust in his broken body, his shed blood on the cross for the payment of our sin. Jesus did for us, he did something for us on the day that he died so that he could do something for us on the day that we die. And that is give us the gift of eternal life. Now in verse 55, he says, For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Now, does Jesus literally mean that his physical body and his blood literally and physically do something for us that are true spiritual food and drink? He does. But does he mean that a believer is to eat his body and drink his blood like a cannibal or a vampire? He does not. His body was literally, it was physically broken. His blood was literally and physically splattered and shed and poured out for us. But it is our faith in this truth that brings us spiritual life. This is our spiritual nourishment today as much or more than it was on the first day we believed it. So what is this spiritual nourishment like? How do we actually partake of this in our lives Monday through Saturday? A couple of years ago, I did an exhaustive study in the Bible of I wanted, I'm so enraptured by the power of the death of Christ and the cross, I wanted to know everything the Bible had to say about it. So I pulled out every verse in the Bible that has anything to say about the death of Christ, the cross of Calvary, all that it accomplishes for us. And I ended up with 10 pages of nothing but Bible verses. And then as I began going through and studying, it was just one of the richest studies I've ever had in my life. And I discovered something. Everything that Jesus does for us on the cross is that the cross becomes a bridge. And he takes us constantly from one place to another place. Now, I want to just go down a list and, 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 and listen to this as I describe a list of where the death of Christ, what it, the cross as a bridge, what it brings us from, over, and then what it brings us to. It brings us from death to life. It brings us from hostility against God to peace with God. It brings us from infirmity and brokenness to inner healing and health because it is by his stripes that we are healed. The cross brings us from a place of sinfulness to a place of righteousness. And not just receiving righteousness, but the Bible says you literally are the righteousness of Christ when you trust in this. It's who you are. It brings us from alienation from God to reconciliation with God. It brings us from mortality to immortality. It brings us from guilt to a place of total and complete innocence. It brings us from shame to a place of great honor. 
That's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> We're going to spend the rest of our lives discovering all that the cross of Jesus has provided for us. Do you have any regrets as you think back about over your past? If you had an eraser and you could just erase anything that you've ever done, anything that you've ever said, any wrong motives, any, any situations in which there, you've hurt people, if you could erase anything, what would it be? I asked this question to a college student downtown one day, and he just looked at me and he said, how big is your eraser? We all have regrets, and the beautiful thing is that the cross wipes the slate clean. Now, this brings out the vast difference between Christianity and every other religion. In every other religion, it tries to give us a way to climb up the mountain to God and to God's favor. But Christianity shows us that we cannot do that that God came down from the mountain of heaven in the form of his son, and he did for us what we cannot do for ourselves by dying on a cross and providing forgiveness by grace through faith. It's not a righteousness that we can earn, but one that is given to us by grace through faith. Now, the difference between an attempt at self-righteousness and trusting in the grace of God is so stark, it is so drastic, it is so scandalous, it's hard to even comprehend. To give you just a little picture of how drastic this difference is, I want to contrast two men in human history. One man was Mahatma Gandhi from India. He exercised incredible spiritual disciplines. He constantly took a vow of poverty. He, he wouldn't even wear shoes. He had thick calluses on his feet. He was always fasting, and so he was a frail little man. He spent many hours in meditation. He had a special diet, and he ate a lot of curry powder, so he, he was known to have bad breath. And you know what that made him? That made him a super calloused, fragile mystic, cursed by halitosis. <laughs> had to set that one up but in spite of all of his discipline he read the Bible and he decided that we do not need a substitutionary atonement for sin that we should take care of our own sin and um, he rejected the sacrifice of Christ now if that's true if he truly read the Bible and of course we don't know what's in anyone's heart I'm not judging him, but if that's his conclusion, that he didn't need the sacrificial death of Christ, then, I, then he's not in heaven today. He doesn't have eternal life. He's separated from God for all of eternity. And yet, all of this spiritual discipline, all of the sacrifice that he made in his life. Now, let me tell you about another man. His name was Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer. The things that he did to his victims were so hideous, they were so repulsive, I cannot even speak of them in a setting like this. The torture that he brought upon those that he killed. But it is reported that when he was in prison, serving a life sentence for all of his murders, 
that someone had a Bible study. He went to the Bible study. He went forward. He prayed to receive Christ. He trusted in the finished work of Christ for forgiveness. He confessed his sin. He repented of his sin. He was baptized. He was attending weekly Bible studies before he was himself beaten to death by a fellow inmate in that prison. Now, if he truly trusted in the work of Christ for his sin, guess what? He could be your roommate in heaven someday. I know, if, if that's hard for you, it's hard for me too to even comprehend that. But here's the real question. Is the broken body and shed blood of Jesus powerful enough to forgive even the sins of a serial killer like Jeffrey Dahmer? And I say to you, yes, it is. Think of the Apostle Paul. He was a bounty hunter for Christians. And he hunted them down and he drugged them into prison and he, he presided over their executions. And then he's saved by the grace of God and ends up writing over half of the New Testament. Oh my goodness, this is beyond human comprehension. The mystery and the astounding spiritual nourishment that comes from believing in the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Let's pick up in verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now what he's saying is that if we trust in the shredded blood of the Spirit, the shredded body, the splattered blood of Jesus for our forgiveness, then we will be able, the first thing he said here is he said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, watch this, abides in me and I in him. He's going to live in us and we can actually live in him. The partaking of the flesh and blood of Jesus by faith symbolizes us taking his very life into us. When you take the Lord's Supper, you take it into your body. You're taking Jesus into your life. This is the most deepest and most intimate experience that anyone can have. It leads us to our last spiritual reality, and that is that the essence of Christianity is living in Christ and Christ living in us. There is a mutual indwelling of Christ in us and us in Christ. To become a Christian is to partake of the very nature of Christ. Now, Jesus made a very powerful claim in John 14, 20. I'd like for us to all read this out loud together. Let's, let's read this together. John 14, verse 20. Let's read it together. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He's saying that we, Jesus is in the Father, we are in him, and he is actually inside of us. How do we comprehend what this means? It's going to take us the rest of our lives and into eternity to fully understand it, but let me give you a few, a couple of word pictures. I went to Russia on a mission trip a number of years ago, and I bought a Matryoshka dolls 
These are Russian uh, nesting dolls, and they're inside of each other. So this one can represent the Father. And Jesus says, I am in my Father. I'm in my Father. You are in me. And by the way, this is the one that gave me the most trouble is me. <laughs> the doll that represents me, it was stuck, and I sanded on it for 30 minutes and still couldn't get it to work right, put oil on it. God reminded me he's been sanding on me for 65 years. <laughs> and then Jesus says, I am in you. Jesus is in the Father. I am in Jesus. And Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, is in me. Now, what does this actually mean Monday through Saturday for you? How do you experience this? It's going to take us the rest of our lives to fully experience this. But here's one thing that I know. Before any circumstance, before anything you go through, before anything that hits you, that comes upon you, before it gets to you, it has to come through the Father, and then it has to come through the Son, and then when it gets to you, finally, you've got Christ in you to give you the power to deal with it. Isn't that incredible? We have all kinds of confidence. We don't have to be afraid of anything because this is where we live. He's living in us. I think of, um, you know, think of your favorite milkshake and, and the straw in that milkshake. Now, I like, uh, I like chocolate cherry milkshakes uh, from cookout and they have big chunks of cherry in them so I have to have a big straw um, but I'm the straw Jesus is the milkshake he's all around me and he's inside of me and then the way God wants it to work is for Jesus to come inside of me and out of me and through me to nourish other people he wants all of us to let the love of Jesus come through us out to others like uh, being in Christ is like being in an army tank and the Indians are on their horses shooting bows and arrows at you and but you're in the army tank there's incredible protection there you know a little boy was trying to understand this little principle of Jesus being inside of your heart he was sitting on his mother's lap he had his head laid on her chest listening to her heartbeat and she said honey what do you hear in there and he said it's Jesus, and he's making coffee. <laughs> How do we apprehend all of this? It's obtained by grace through faith. We must simply trust that it's true. We must trust that the broken and cut and bruised flesh of Jesus and the spilled out, poured out blood of Jesus actually did something for us. We just simply have to trust him. Mark Yarborough is the vice president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He was speaking at a conference in Colorado, and he took his family with him, and at this conference, they had one of these incredible snow tubing runs with a chairlift. And uh, on the last day, he waited until about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The sun had melted the snow. It iced back over as it started to get cold again. That made the tubing run like twice as fast. And he was so excited. He decided to take his little son, Joseph, his three-year-old son, Joseph, up for one last run. Well, they got on the chairlift. There was a girl in front of them, and they were the last ones, no one else around. They took this chairlift up. They got up to the top of the mountain, and just as the little girl got to the top of the chairlift, 
the chairlift lurched and it stopped and the little girl started screaming. She had gotten her leg caught in the pulley apparatus mechanics of that, of that chairlift. She was screaming. And so Mark dropped little Joseph down in the snow. He, he jumped off the chairlift down into the snow and he picked him up and he climbed on up to the top and he went up and her leg was just jammed up in there and he worked and worked and worked and he finally got her leg uh, out from that mechanism but it was broken in many places and he knew that she was in real danger and he had to get her down. Well, he had this dilemma of how to get Joseph and this little girl down, down the mountain. So he laid her down, he went over to Joseph and he said, buddy, uh, we've got to do something here. He said, I'm going to put you in this tube and you're going to have to go down by yourself so that I can carry this little girl down. And Joseph's chin started quivering and he said, I'm scared, daddy. He said, son, you can do this. You just have to trust me. You just have to trust me. Just get in and I'm sure, I promise you, you're going to make it down okay. And so he shook his head against his tears and he said, I trust you, daddy. I trust you. And he got him in that inner tube, set him on the edge of the hill. Then he went back to get the little girl. And when he picked her up and he turned around, Joseph was already gone. It had just taken, he was all the way over the edge and he couldn't even see him. So he situated himself on the top. He set this little girl down in his lap. He slid all the way down that mountain. He got to the bottom and he was so frantic to get help for this girl. He was crying out and the people came running over and he got the medics over there and they got her on a gurney and, and, they, and they, they took her off to the station so that they could medevac her out. And he was just mo wanting to make so sure that she was okay. And when he finally realized that, that she was taken care of, then he thought, oh, where's Joseph? He started looking around frantically. He couldn't find Joseph. He looked way over at the end of that sledding run and there was a lone inner tube sitting there and his heart just sunk. He ran over towards that inner tube and just before he got over there, this little head popped out, these little feet popped up and Joseph squirmed his way up out of that inner tube and he turned around and he said, we did it, daddy, I trusted you. He trusted him, and he got safely down the mountain. I know it may sound like a simple thing, but the only way you're going to be able to fully experience the spiritual realities that are in this Lord's Supper is you're going to have to trust that this broken body and this shed blood was sufficient to actually accomplish all of these things that I listed as a cross, as a, as a bridge from and to for your life. Now, maybe you've already received Christ. Maybe you've already trusted in these things. And today, there's just some new dimensions you're going to step into. Wonderful. But perhaps you've never fully trusted in Jesus before. You've never fully trusted that his broken body and his shed blood was sufficient. Now, I want to just say this. I realize it's a stretch to believe that something Jesus did 2,000 years ago is actually sufficient for you today and can actually accomplish all of these things for you. But you're going to have to accept it by faith. There is no other way. You can't scientifically prove this. It is a step of faith. But when you look at the promises, when you look at these hundreds of changed lives, and I'm the top of a list of all that I've seen the cross do for me, I could not live with myself 
if it wasn't for what Jesus did for me on the cross. And the liberation that I've experienced and so many other people have experienced, it's life-changing. You can trust him. You can trust him, and he'll get you all the way to heaven with it. So if you're ready to receive Christ, I'd like for you to pray with me right now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the powerful change that comes through the broken body and shed blood of Christ and all that it accomplished. And for those of us who have believed it for years, I pray that you'd give us the courage to step into new dimensions of freedom in Christ from whatever we're doing to whatever it accomplishes for us as a bridge. But Lord, I also want to pray for someone here who may not have ever fully embraced this for themselves. Maybe they're still kicking the tires of Christianity, and I just ask that you give them the gift of faith right now. And as you give them that gift of faith, that they will be able to step into this and experience all of its benefits. And so if you're ready to do that right now, I just encourage you to pray with me. Dear Jesus, I don't understand all of this. I know it can't be proven scientifically. I know that, um, that this is a bold, audacious, uh, even scandalous claim. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to receive it for myself. And I want to confess my sin. I want to repent of my sin. I want to turn to you. I want to receive what you have, and I want to follow you for the rest of my life and get in on this great adventure of experiencing all that you've accomplished for me through your broken body and your poured out blood. Thank you for coming into my life in your name. Amen.